We'll hear argument first this term in Case 10-1491, Kiobel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum. Mr. Hoffman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The plaintiffs in this case received asylum in the United States because of the human rights violations alleged in the complaint. They sued the defendants for their role in these human rights violations in U.S. courts because the defendants are here and subject to the general personal jurisdiction of our courts. Nothing, there's nothing unusual about suing a tortfeasor in our — May I ask you about the statement you just made? Um, personal jurisdiction was raised as a defense, right? Um, personal jurisdiction was raised uh, as an affirmative defense, but not uh, raised in a motion to dismiss. And so your position is it was waived? Yes. But it was not adjudicated that there is personal jurisdiction. It was not adjudicated in this case. Um, Our position, it was waived when it was not raised in a Rule 12 motion. What affects that commenced in the United States or that are closely related to the United States exist between uh, what happened here and what happened in Nigeria? Uh, the, The only connection between um, the events in Nigeria and the United States is that the the plaintiffs are now living in the United States and have asylum because of those events, and the defendants are here. There's no other connection between the events that took place in the in Nigeria and the forum. The 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 basis for um, suing the defendants here was because they are here and because it was possible to get um, jurisdiction. And and just to make it clear, it's your position, and I believe it's the position of the United States, I'm not sure, that if a U.S. corporation commits an international law violation in the United States, that U.S. corporation can be sued in any court in the world. Well, it is is possible that other countries would — um, assert jurisdiction. Um, I think that, generally speaking, and it, and, it, and it might well have been the case in this case, it had the issues been raised. Most of the time, alternative doctrines like the requirement of personal jurisdiction, or the requirement, uh, or forum nonconvenience, or other doctrines would would have those cases litigated in other places. But and, uh, but but I, the way I stated the hypothetical or the proposition. That is your beginning proposition. Oh, there might be some defenses, but that, as a beginning matter, they can be sued in any country, in any court in the world. Well, I think it would depend on what the events were and what the claims were and, and, and what the law in that jurisdiction was. Well, I think we, the, assume, uh, we assume a violation of international law. That's okay. the hypothetical. Yeah, well, I think that if, if, if in fact, the, the U.S. corporation committed a violation of a universal jurisdiction norm, for example, as we believe these norms are in this case. There are many jurisdictions in which U.S. corporations could be, um, could be sued. In fact, in the United Kingdom and, and the Netherlands, I believe their, um, juris- their um, provisions enforcing the International Criminal Court. I suppose, might, if you have, have, I suppose if you have, as I think there probably is in this case, a number of plaintiffs, they can sue in a number of different countries, right? Some will choose, sue in the United States, others in the United Kingdom, others in the Netherlands. Well, it, 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 it is possible that the plaintiffs could have sued in other places. Um, they sued here because this is where they live. This is their adopted homeland because of that. Um, the United States under international law clearly has jurisdiction to adjudicate claims between parties properly before them. Is there, some, is there some super body that uh, decides what constitutes a violation of the particular norms of international law? That is to say, these other countries that have jurisdiction, they, they decide for themselves, don't they, what, whether there's been a violation of the international norm or not? Well, if, if, if there are proceedings with respect to those norms or violations, yes, they do. I mean, in domestic courts, there are international tribunals that have a limited jurisdiction, and they decide. There are some ad hoc tribunals that decide other cases. And the national, national courts have always been engines of 
of decision-making on, on, on international law. In fact, yeah, that's the foundation of this, of this statute, comes from the Founders' desire to have Federal courts decide what law of nations claims. Sure. Na- national courts have been the deciders when, when the violation occurs within the nation. But to give uh, national courts elsewhere uh, the power to determine whether a United States corporation in the United States has violated a norm of international law is, is something else, it seems to me. Well, it's, it's unlikely that, that that would come up because the suit could be brought in the United States. It's also unlikely because, based on most forum nonconvenience doctrines, the, the, the suit would, would be heard here. You didn't mention exhaustion of administrative remedies. That, well, that. Th- there is the possibility of exhaustion of local remedies. I know the, the European Union brief suggests that that's part of the international law package that one has to accept. And this Court in Sosa did say that it would consider an exhaustion of local remedies doctrine if, if that was the case. And, of course, exhaustion of local remedies would be an additional safeguard against the, the, the issue that Justice Kennedy and Suppose Justice a case like this is brought in the United States and the uh, State Department tells the district court that allowing this case to go forward will have a very deleterious effect on U.S. foreign policy and on the welfare of U.S. Uh, US citizens abroad. And I think the, district, that the district court says, well, uh, there's nothing I can do about it. This case is just going to go forward. That's your position? Well, no, not at all. I mean, I, I think Well, what that, would happen in that situation? Well, but I think the political question doctrine would, would clearly apply, and, 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 and a court would decide whether to go forward. If, if the United States believed that, um, that the case should be dismissed, as I understand the U.S. position in past cases like Doe versus Exxon, is that, that there should be interlocutory appeal from, from a denial of a political question doctrine um, decision if, to go forward in light of that. What if the district court won't certify a question for interlocutory appeal? Well, but I, I think what the U.S. position is, and I think, I think it would — I assume it would be accepted, is that if the United States says going forward at all raises those questions, that it would be able to go up on a Cohen versus well, — Well, I — you know, Justice uh, Alito can protect his own hypothetical, but it seems to me you're walking away from it. The, the, the question, as I understood it, assumed that there is a violation of international law. Right. But that proceeding with this particular case will, because of some other reasons, right. uh, in, involve the United States or its citizens living abroad uh, in serious complications with the foreign government. That's not a political question. Well, it, 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 that, it, it could I mean, be. It's got, there's political consequences, but that's the whole point. Well, it, it, that, there's, there's, you can't cite a case — but maybe you can. Please do if you can. This is part of the political question doctrine. Well, I think in, in Corey versus Caterpillar, for example, there were alleged human rights violations, and the United States said that because USAID was involved in providing the um, the bulldozers that were involved in that alleged human rights violation, that the court should dismiss on political question grounds, and the courts did dismiss on political question grounds. Couldn't you just say, yeah. if you do, we, would we have the power to say, looking at SOSA? and the principles that narrow considerably the subject matter of this statute to add a requirement that if the State Department says that it interferes with foreign relations, doesn't fall within the statute, can't bring it. Well, that I, would get rid of this problem, wouldn't it? Well, it, that would get rid of the problem. I think that, in, in truth, the, the, the way the political question doctrine would work would probably end up being the same way as be the same thing. Rule. By the way, did we sign the torture treaty? Yes, we've right. ratified. We've signed the torture treaty. We've the torture treaty does provide for internet for what is it called universal jurisdiction? Yes. All right. So if in fact a corporation in the United States in cahoots with the government or something should do the unusual thing of violating the torture treaty, uh, Tasmania or uh, uh, any country in the world that signed the torture treaty would have jurisdiction under that treaty to uh, proceed. Right. Is I mean, that right? So that the situation true. that we're talking about already is in existence. It's That's right. I mean, it, there's nothing that the, that the Court would do in this case that would change. Well, if it was a corporation, it wouldn't fall under the torture. The, the tor- well, that, that's — no, the torture treaty says nothing about right. corporations. Right? right. I mean, that's — it's different from the ICC. But the — the, the — if, 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 yes, just — um, 
the amicus brief from the European Commission. Yes. And it provides for a very simple rule. Please explain to me what's wrong with it. It basically says you have to borrow both the substantive and procedural international law norms, that those norms do permit these foreign cubed cases only so long as either, it appears to me, um, the defendant is a citizen of the country, the acts occurred within that country, or the alien has exhausted both domestic and international avenues for relief, a sort of forum by necessity, which apparently most countries have, including the ones who have submitted amici arguing different points, like England and the Netherlands. Right. Um, Seems to me like a fairly simple set of rules, clearly defined and limiting the application of this statute um, in a way that sort of makes sense. Well, I think it, What's it, wrong with the rule? I, I don't think there is a lot wrong with the rule, actually. If we, in, in a foreign cube kind of case, it seems to me the EU position is, number one, that there is universal jurisdiction, no matter whether you consider the, the federal common law cause of action prescriptive or not. And so the, the countries of the world have agreed that, that all states have an interest in enforcing these fundamental norms, uh, and that's uh, part of international law. And that, that what goes with that are limits of exhaustion of remedies under international law, which gar- safeguards the interests of third states before the United States. So answer me, why is this not a case where, on the facts, there has been a failure to exhaust? Well, I think that we would — we would. For, there's no record, obviously, about that. And one of the arguments that we would make about exhaustion, I believe, is that it would have been futile um, to exhaust <laughs> under international law uh, — under international law standards. Mike, Nigeria is one question, but other potential for are the U.K. and the Netherlands. Right. And, and, and I think that we would — you know, we have — if there was an exhaustion of local remedies requirement, then we would have to see if we could satisfy that. I think — haven't both of those nations said they would not entertain this case? Uh, it's not clear. I mean, in, in fact, the, the — um, you know, there's a recent Dutch decision that goes perhaps farther than the alien tort statute, the Al-Hujaj case. But you would agree, Mr. Hoffman, that if there were an exhaustion requirement, it would not apply only to Nigeria, but also to the Netherlands well, and to the U.K.? I mean, it, it depends on how the Court frames it. I mean, the, there's, the, there's the exhaustion requirement in the Torture Vision Protection Act. There are other arguments about what that looks like under international law. I mean, I think that, that in, to follow up on Justice Sotomayor's point, I think that if, if that's deemed by the court to be a requirement of international law, then international law rules on exhaustion should apply. And we would either be able to satisfy them or not, or take whatever position well, we would UK, take with respect to them. The U.K. and the Netherlands, I, I — uh, well, I'll ask you do, you, do you disagree that those are, are fair judicial systems where a plaintiff can get a fair shake? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that, that anybody disputes that the legal systems in the Netherlands or the United Kingdom are fair. I mean, they well, obviously are. if that's so, then what does this case — why does this case belong in the courts of the United States? Well, the, it has nothing to do with the United States other than the fact that a subsidiary of the defendant has a big operation here. Well, it, 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 from our standpoint, it, it's here — the way I started the argument, really, which is that our clients are here, they're here, um, their personal jurisdiction has not been contested, and no one made a forum nonconvenience motion in this particular case. Now, there was a, a forum nonconvenience motion in a, in a companion case. So, but I think that that's a problem that goes more what, toward — What happened to that? Um, it was — the Second Circuit um, overturned the, the district court on forum nonconvenience. And overturned so, it which way? It said that, that the case — that the WeWa case could proceed. Um, and and um, — it, So rejected the forum nonconvenience. Rejected forum nonconvenience in that case. And I know that the, the United States brief um, 
believes that that was wrongly decided. But from our standpoint, the, if we're talking about the way that the ATS should be structured, our belief is that forum nonconvenience, generally speaking, is going to deal with the problem that, the problems that the court has raised. If, if the court believes that the WeWood decision was wrong or that that doctrine's wrong, that doctrine should be changed. May I ask you a question about uh, your reliance on the alien tort statute? But if your theory is that this is a violation of a universal norm and that federal common law makes it a claim available in the United States, now there is 1331 general federal question jurisdiction. Couldn't you have said, never mind the alien tort statute, I'm suing under 1331 federal question jurisdiction, and I've got the, the, the claim for relief is the U.S. common law implementing the international norm? Well, I think, I think this Court in Sosa said that its analysis did not necessarily apply to 1331, and I think that's because of the history of 1350. The history of 1350, as the historian's brief lays out, is that the Founders believed that certain law of nations norms could be implemented by common law tort actions. And, and this Court in Sosa found that without further congressional action, the courts of the United States would be available to enforce norms that were similar to those norms. And, in fact, the norms that, that the founders were familiar with were very similar in, in kind to the universal jurisdiction norms that Justice Sotomayor. Yes, but but general, general common law was not considered to be federal law, neither federal law nor state law. If that were so, uh, every tort action, which in those days were decided under, under uh, a general law that was up there in the sky, would, would have been a, a, federal, uh, a federal claim. But there were, cer- there, were certain cl- there were certain norms that were believed to be part of the law of nations, including piracy and attacks on ambassadors, and, and they were governed by universal common standards. law. It's general common law. Well, but I think this Court found in Sosa that, that — that, that part of common law at the time has become customary international law and that, that the courts of this country have not lost their ability to enforce the same kinds of law of nations norms as the founders wanted to, be, to enforce in the Alien Tort Statute in the context of universal human rights norms. Well, that isn't the issue. The issue is whether when they do so, they are enforcing federal law or not. I think this Court said that, that it's the federal common law within um, one of the exceptions or, uh, to, to Erie. And, and I think this Court, right after Erie, found that there were enclaves of federal law, one of them being the area of foreign relations, where federal common law should be viewed well, that, as, that as federal Well, that answer would apply if you were answering Justice Ginsburg's question in the affirmative by saying that there is 1331 jurisdiction, but you need not go so far, given Sosa. Well, we don't. We don't. And I think the, the distinction is that in Sosa and in the Alien Tort Statute, the statute itself speaks about torts. Um, this Court found, based on the history and intent of the Congress, that there was no reason to wait for any congressional authorization to go forward on those claims. And, uh, and, and therefore, it was available um, to bring claims. Um, so the, well, maybe we're not taking the position to, that 1331. Maybe they had to provide that in uh, 1789 because there was no, there was no general federal question jurisdiction existing at the time. Well, it, it, it could be, but what, what, the, what, what seems more obvious about the reason for the Alien Tort Statute was to make sure that there was, there was a federal court available to litigate law of nations claims that could have been litigated in state court, just as these claims could be litigated in state court. And, and in fact, one of the, the — and also an answer to the respondents' claims about extraterritoriality, if one imagines under the respondents' theory — um, you could — a French ambassador could be attacked by a Frenchman in Pennsylvania and have alien tort statute jurisdiction and a claim for relief. If a U.S. citizen attacked 
the French ambassador on foreign soil, he wouldn't have an alien tort statute claim. He would be sent to the state courts if he could, if the state courts were open, which is exactly the opposite of the purpose of the alien tort statute, the fundamental known purpose of the alien tort statute. But you point up, I think, an anomaly. I mean, if if the victim is a United States citizen, you say the only ties here are that the victims got asylum in the United States, so they're here. But someone who is here all the time, someone who is a citizen of the United States, but is abroad and is a victim of one of these atrocities, there would be no suit for such a person. Well, the, the, the Congress provided for, for some jurisdiction in the torture victim. Yeah, but under act. the Alien Tort Statute. Well, the, the Alien Tort Statute is limited to alien plaintiffs. I mean, and that was the congressional design, and it was — that it arises out of the history to make sure that aliens with Law of Nations claims had access to, to federal courts and, and federal remedies to, to vindicate um, those positions. Um, the, the United States could still take action to protect the U.S. citizen. Um, if, can I reserve the balance of my time? You can. Ms. Sullivan? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case has nothing to do with the United States. It's Nigerian plaintiffs suing an English and Dutch company for activity alleged to have aided and abetted the Nigerian government for conduct taking place entirely within Nigeria. And, Justice Ginsburg, to the personal jurisdiction question, Shell did not waive personal jurisdiction objections to the suit. The Court in the Companion Wiwa case determined — rejected the personal uh, jurisdiction affirmative defense, and the Second Circuit affirmed. So if you look at Joint Appendix pages 111 to 112, you'll see that we absolutely preserve the personal jurisdiction defense. Missing from the discussion you've just had with Mr. Hoffman about possible ways to minimize the dangers of applying the ATS in foreign countries is any mention of Congress. And I'd like to return us to the question presented on this round of the argument, which is, should the ATS and Justice Ginsburg federal common law be applied to conduct taking place entirely within the borders of a foreign country? And our answer is it should not under the — Does that mean, Ms. Sullivan, that — you uh, — and do I understand your argument on brief correctly, that you would say from the revival of 1350, from Philadelphia was wrong because nothing happened — nothing happened in the United States there. Marcos was wrong because nothing — the wrong occurred abroad. D- does your, your — the argument you're making now that this is not applicable — do things that happen offshore exclude Philadelphia and Marcos? We do not believe that you need to address Philardega because Philardega is taken care of entirely by the proper body, which is Congress. Congress, in enacting the TVPA, the Torture Victim Protection Act, covered a situation like Philardega, where a Paraguayan plaintiff sues a Paraguayan individual defendant for conduct in Paraguay. Well, maybe it's just history and background, but I would really like you to answer Justice Ginsburg question. Suppose uh, we had granted cert in Philadelphia before Congress acted. What, under your position, what should have been the result? I think that was the purport of your question, and I would appreciate yes. an answer to it. Yes, Justice Kennedy. We think the current correct result is that the ATS and federal common law, which is substantive and remedial law of the United States, and here we agree with the United States on page two of its brief, ATS plus federal common law is the substantive and remedial law of the United States, and we think under the well-established canon against extraterritorial application of U.S. law, absent congressional clear indication there should not be such an extension. Ms. Sullivan, Sullivan, can I ask you about your your position on extraterritorial application? I I believe uh, strongly in in the presumption against extraterritorial application. But do you know of any other area where extraterritorial application only means uh, application on the territory of a foreign country? and not application on the high seas? Well — I, I find that, you know, 
extraterritorial means extraterritorial. But, but you contend that this, as you, I think you must, that this statute applies on the high seas. We, we don't concede that the statute applies on the high seas. Oh, you don't? So, okay. so, I, I thought that was common ground. I'm glad to know it isn't. Sosa, Sosa said, looking to the three Blackstone paradigms, assaults on ambassadors, interference with safe conducts, and piracy, that certainly the antecedents to the ATS, the Marbois incident of an attack in Philadelphia and the, the New York constable entering the home in New York City of the Dutch ambassador, those were incidents on U.S. soil. And Sosa says perhaps also the third paradigm, piracy, might also be covered. But well, even I thought if that was the most clear uh, violation of an international norm. It's the one thing that the civilized countries would agree on is that you at the time. capture pirates. Our clear — our position on piracy is this. Even if you think the ATS and federal common law can extend to conduct on the high seas, which are stateless, a place where no foreign sovereign rules, that does not mean that the ATS and federal common law can apply to conduct within a foreign sovereign well, It doesn't borders. mean that. It doesn't mean that. But if the, what is the question we're asking? If, when this statute was passed, it applied to pirates, the question to me is, who are today's pirates? And if Hitler isn't a pirate, who is? And if, in fact, uh, an equivalent torturer or dictator who wants to destroy an entire race in his own country is not the equivalent of today's pirate, who is? And we have treaties that say there is universal jurisdiction. Other countries take it. Justice we Frank took it in Philardega. We took it in the cases that Justice Ginsburg mentioned. So I absolutely grant you could make the distinction. But given the purpose and an objective of the statute, why should we make it? Justice Breyer, with respect, the United States has not acceded to the principle of universal civil jurisdiction. And with respect at our — Well, we did explicitly we, in uh, the torture treaty in respect to uh, that particular incident. Justice Breyer, on our, in our brief at 48, note 11, you'll see that that's not quite the case. I'm sorry, 40 — I'm sorry. Uh, we object — the United States objected to the universal civil jurisdiction aspect of the Convention Against Torture. We've never acceded to that. And the reason is that we fear exactly the consequences Justice Kennedy began the argument with. We fear that if we say that a United States court can be open to try any accused law of nations violator for anywhere in the world, regardless of the place of the conduct, the other nations of the world might seek to do the same to us. Belgium they do that, don't they, with torture? I mean, isn't that universal? It's criminal, not civil, quite right. Does that make it better? Criminal is very different from civil. And what we — the precise argument we're making here is that the presumption against application of U.S. law to conduct within foreign sovereigns — and remember, the purpose of the presumption, Justice Scalia, is to avoid conflict with foreign sovereigns. There is no foreign sovereign over the high seas. The conflict arises, and the presumption protects against this conflict. When we go into a foreign nation, we project our law. I, un Justice I understand that. That's the worst. But I, I really don't — you, you, you appeal to the general principle of uh, territoriality of our laws. And as I say, I don't know any other case where, where that principle uh, allows our, security, our securities laws to be applied on the high seas, for example, well, even though they can't apply in Australia. Your Honor, if you wish to say no extraterritorial application, we think SOSA does not foreclose that, because SOSA simply said piracy might be one of the, the actions covered. But I want to get back to the key point, which is — Could I ask this about piracy? In, in 1789, do you think that Congress was contemplating tort actions against pirates in courts of the United States? No, we do not, Your Honor, because we think that in-rem actions were the typical things contemplated. And as soon as United States against Palmer comes along, this Court applied — the presumption against extraterritorial application of U.S. law to uh, uh, the application of the then extant piracy statute to a foreign flag vessel on the high seas. The thought was, don't apply it to the foreign flag vessel because that's like a mini foreign country on the high seas. So we would argue that the presumption against extraterritoriality actually applied in the founding era, even to piracy. But even if you were to say, well, piracy is covered now, it doesn't follow that the norms that are invoked here under the law of nations can be subject to a U.S. civil cause of action. And I want to stress that our point is that the U.S. is projecting here, not only through the statute, the ATS, but through the causes of action under federal common law, 
our law onto foreign countries. Well, Mr. Mr. Your, your argument is very broad, and I want to ask you a, a, a question. You, you know, not, your case might properly be dismissed, but take a different case, and it's a, just a variation on the Marbois incident, where instead of being attacked in Philadelphia, the French ambassador to Britain is attacked in London, but is attacked by a United States citizen who then comes home to the United States, seeks refuge in the United States, and uh, uh, the, French the French ambassador wants to bring an action. Wouldn't the ATS have contemplated exactly that sort of action? I mean, why would it make any difference whether the attack on the French ambassador by a United States citizen occurred in Philadelphia or occurred in London? The difference it makes is that uh, — in, in your hypothetical, the reverse Marbois case, the uh, proper remedy would have been to seek — for France to seek extradition of the U.S. assailant. And well, — Well, I, I think I'm advised uh, by the Solicitor General's office that there were very few extradition treaties at that time. And even if extradition was a, a possible remedy, I mean, why shouldn't we understand the ATS to provide supplemental remedies as well? civil as well as criminal, civil as well as extradition? Because Congress hasn't clearly said so. And for the point of the presumption is to avoid all of the judge-made possible qualifications that were discussed earlier, exhaustion, political question, the possible limitations suggested by the European Union. Congress doesn't get to say anything if it's the courts deciding through their own prudence together with the advice from the Department of State. And, Justice Alito, in answer to your question whether — Excuse me. Excuse me. Do, do, do you mean that, that, that the courts in those areas where you acknowledge the, uh, the statute applies, that the courts will not apply doctrines of exhaustion, of, uh, uh, you know, comedy, of, of — uh, uh, the appropriateness of bringing the action here? Of course they will, won't they? They're not always applied, Justice Scalia, and if so, it sometimes takes many years before they happen. And the State Department is not always listened to. In the South African apartheid case, not only did the State Department uh, seek to uh, uh, protest the action, but the, the government of South Africa filed a letter and the district court ignored both. Well, so we should fix that then. But that's not the question here, right? The question here is um, — uh, is the, is the different one of whether you ever get to the exhaustion question. And Correct. to go back to the reverse Marbois, you said Congress didn't speak. But I think what we said in Sosa is that Congress did speak, that Congress was referring to exactly that kind of tort when it passed the Alien Tort Statute. And you are saying it would have made a difference to Congress that the incident occurred in a different place even though it, the attacker was a United States citizen seeking refuge in the United States and leaving the French with no remedy. The, with respect, Your Honor, the French had several remedies. The French uh, victim could have sued in tort in the United States. And under the transitory tort doctrine that was adopted at the time, which is not a precedent for the ATS, would have allowed a suit under French law. French law would have been imported to try that claim, and so it could have been tried in state court as an assault. Second, there could have been extradition. Third, the point of the Marbois incident in stimulating the ATS was that if, if a, a U.S. citizen attacked the French ambassador on U.S. soil and we then harbored him, that could have led to an incident of war. But there's no incident of war or conflict posed in your hypothetical because extradition was possible in state court tort violations, state law tort, state court jurisdiction over a transitory tort could have obtained. Do you think it matters that the harboring is after the fact or not? Meaning if the, if the mercenary fled France and was hiding from the French here, why is there any less chance of a war? Well, I don't understand. The, the, the apples and apples don't just, seem to not match in my mind. Justice Sotomayor, I, uh, there's theoretically the possibility that if state law transitory tort didn't work and if extradition didn't work and if the French didn't sit, just seek to punish the assailant in their own country, maybe there would have been international conflict. But there's no evidence Congress was thinking about that. Pirates could have been sued in state court, too. And yet the ATS, I know that you quarrel about whether an act of piracy qualifies as an international norm, but assuming that I accept it is, 
uh, pirates could have been, under your theory, pirates could have been sued in state court, too. Yet For Congress found it important to pass the ATS. It did. But, Your Honor, there is not a single founding-era precedent, not a single one, that involves the reverse hypothetical. Every single founding-era precedent that stimulated the ATS or came soon in its aftermath involved international law violations alleged to have occurred on U.S. soil or in U.S. waters. The two cases most soon after the ATS were Moxon versus the Fanny uh, and Bolchos versus Darrell, which involved supposed law of, of nations violations on U.S. waters and on U.S. soil. What would should happen when the, the injury occurs within the territory of a foreign country but it is alleged that the injury was directed by someone in the United States. Justice Alito, we would respectfully urge that direction is not enough if the place of the injury and the place of the last conduct was on foreign soil. We think ordinary restatement of conflict principles would suggest that you look to the law of the place of injury, not to the forum law. And the most important point about the ATS and federal common law, even if it were under Section 1331, Justice Ginsburg, is that it's an application of U.S. substantive and remedial law to another country. And the offense is we're telling the other country that they have to entertain private civil uh, litigation, and there is a difference, Justice Breyer, between criminal and You're, you're right about that. What about the Bradford? Isn't there all this stuff about — you know what I'm saying? Bradford is the best thing the petitioners have in the founding era, and it's not enough to overcome the presumption, because, because he could have been speaking about the high seas. He we could have, but if you read it, it looks as if there was what he's upset about or what Britain was upset about was an American. And he — Yeah, go ahead. It was Americans, but we, we think it properly read — the uh, hostilities of which he spoke uh, was the high seas part of the conduct. It was an American who piloted the French fleet 60 miles from the Ile des Lost to the Sierra Leone River. And that was, if you read grammatically, we think that's what uh, Attorney General Bradford was referring to. But, but Sullivan, before your time runs out, you have said candidly that if Philadelphia were to come up today, if Marcos would come up to this forum, there would be no basis under the alien tort statute. But assume for the moment that those two cases, that we accept them. Sosa seemed to accept them. Uh, is there anything different about your case? Yes, Your Honor. There are many, many differences between us and Florida. For one, this is a case in which there is a, a, a class action against a corporation. And if you don't agree with us on the lack of extraterritorial application, we still maintain that the ATS does not apply to corporations. Second, there is there was a, a, a there's an allegation here of aiding and abetting a foreign government. It was unclear in Florida whether the Paraguayan was acting within or without the state's authority. But — and he was later deported, so we don't know the answer. But here, the offense is magnified because the allegation is that a, a, an English and a Dutch company aided and abetted the Nigerian government. That's where the offense to the principle against international friction is at its highest. And so if you weren't to adopt their position in full, at a minimum, we think, you should hold that the presumption applies to foreign cubed cases involving aiding and abetting a foreign government, where everything is foreign. But we don't think you should do that uh, in the first instance. We respectfully submit the better approach is to apply the presumption as a categorical matter. But in Phil Artiga, why wasn't there an aiding and abetting? I think it was pretty clear. He, he probably was working for the government. It's even worse. Well, he, but, and I, I am interested in Justice Ginsburg's question. Yes. Just assume we think Second Circuit was right pre-congressional uh, action under the Alien Tort Statute. Um, it, is, is there any way in which we can use the principle of extraterritoriality to rule in your favor? Uh, we think there is, Justice Kennedy, and we think the principle of extraterritoriality is, is, is essentially a democracy-forcing device to send these questions back to Congress. And if they well, send it back to Congress — We've crossed that bridge already, didn't we, in Sosa? You have the presumption applies to interpreting acts of Congress. We're over that. We're, in, we're making this law up ourselves, right? Chief, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, you are making it up themselves, and that's why there's all the more reason to apply the presumption against application to foreign countries. It's far worse to have judges — you're asking us to overturn our precedents. You're, you're basically saying Filarde and Marcos 
Sosa, they were all wrong. We are not, Your Honor. Sosa did not address the question we have before the Court today. Counsel, how not, can you say that? Maybe did, the facts didn't, but certainly the reasoning of the case addressed that issue very directly and, and basically said it does. And then it talked about how you limit it. That's to, what Sosa did. To answer the Chief Justice's question, you don't need to overrule, so to speak, Florida on Justice Kennedy's question. You can simply say that in the intervening period, Congress did, as is appropriate in the area of applying law to foreign conduct, pass a specific statute, the TVPA, that applies exactly to the conduct in Florida. That should inform your decision today that you don't need judge-made law to address the situation in Florida. And you don't need to overrule SOSA with respect, Justice Sotomayor, because SOSA did not address, for better or for worse, the extraterritoriality argument we make today. It went off at the first step, no international norm specifically universal and specific, sufficiently specific and universal. So it didn't get to the concerns about friction with foreign countries. Ms. Sullivan, I'm I'm, I'm going to read you something from SOSA, which it, it, it talks all about the rule that it adopts, and then it says, this is generally consistent with the reasoning of many of the courts and judges who faced the issue before it reached this Court, see Philartica, and then it quotes Philartica, for purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. So we uh, gave the stamp of approval to Philartica and Philartica's understanding that there were certain categories of offenders who were today's pirates. If the fact that the nations of the world agree on norms does not mean the nations of the world agree on remedies. And what the ATS and federal common law, as interpreted in SOSA, do is project a U.S. civil cause of action with U.S. rules, punitive damages, no attorney fee shifting, contingent fee, punitive damages. That should not be done except by Congress. They did it in the TVPA, but you should not permit it to be done here. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Solomon. General Verrilli. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation when the allegation is that the defendant aided and abetted a foreign sovereign. In this category of cases, there just isn't any meaningful connection is to the United States. Is that the same? Is that your simple rule? Is that how you want us to rule? Yes, that can never be aiding and abetting on behalf of a corporation. Is that your simple answer to this case? Or it's a narrower case? statement than that, Justice Sotomayor. It's that uh, there shouldn't be a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation that's alleged to have aided and abetted the acts of a foreign sovereign. What about your? You do say in your brief that you think that Philadelphia is within the Alien Tort Statute. Yes, we do, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, you, don't, you don't adopt the theory that many of the briefs do, that there has to be some connection, some nexus to the United States. You just tell us that Philardega is okay. How about Marcos? Is that okay? Well, we think in Philardega, Justice Ginsburg, that the, the, uh, there, there is a nexus to the United States. The actual perpetrator was — A, it was a case against the actual yeah, perpetrator. Yeah, but you, you, and don't, you don't, you don't um, offer us the nexus. You don't offer us that reason why Philardega was okay. Yes, I think our reasons for why Philardega was okay is it, that it was the actual perpetrator, not an aider and a better, and the actual perpetrator was resident in the United States. And I do think when Congress enacted the TVPA, that's what — Congress looked to as the salient features of the Philardega situation. That what, what else? What else? You, you say Philardega. You don't mention Marcos. Is Marcos, in your view, uh, a proper exercise? I, I, I think Philardega is the paradigm, and cases like Philardega are the paradigm that where we think ATS, uh, ATS causes of action should be recognized. And really, that's, that's a new position for the, for the State Department, isn't it? It's a new position. And, and for the United States Government. Why should, why should we listen to you rather than the Solicitors General who took the opposite position and the position taken by respondents here 
in other cases, not only in several courts of appeals, but even up here. Well, Justice Scalia, in a case like this one, in cases under the Alien Tort Statute, the United States has multiple interests. We certainly have foreign relations interests in avoiding friction with foreign governments. We have interests in avoiding subjecting United States companies to liability abroad. We also have interests in ensuring that our nation's foreign relations commitments to the rule of law and human rights are not eroded. I understand that, but, but it's my responsibility to balance those comp- sometimes competing interests and make a judgment about what the position of the United States should be consistent with it, existing it was, law. It was, it was the have, responsibility so. of your predecessors as well, and they took a different position. So, you know, why, why, why should we defer to the views of, uh, uh, of the current administration? Well, because we think they're persuasive, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Well, you're, 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 your successors may adopt a different view. And I think — I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Justice Scalia's point means whatever deference you're entitled to is compromised by the fact that uh, your predecessors took a different position. So — Mr. Chief Justice, let me be clear. In this case, our position is that the Court ought not recognize a cause of action. Suppose that the the defendant in this case um, were a U.S. corporation, but the case were otherwise identical. What result then? In that case, the the possible risk of foreign relations friction would be comparable. The risk of reciprocal uh, exposure to American companies would also exist. The difference between that case and this case, Your Honor, is that there would be a much more substantial connection to the United States because it's an American company. The question uh, in, in the case would be whether the, uh, that substantial connection provided a sufficient justification for uh, subjecting the United States company to these international law norms to, uh, to avoid undermining the credibility of our nation's commitment to those norms. We haven't taken a position on that question in this case, because we think that the Court ought to proceed incrementally here. The case before the Court involves a foreign corporation in which there just isn't any connection to the United States at all, and it's our judgment that the Court so should proceed that case. You're disavowing any form of necessity view of the ATS? Uh, you're disavowing what other countries do or say with respect to citizens, to aliens who are attacked? Our, our view about that, Justice Sotomayor, is that the key determinant here and the reason why there ought not be a cause of action here is the absence of any meaningful connection to the United States. And I asked you a question, question directly. Are you, question foregoing, is, are you foregoing any forum necessity exception to the rule you've just announced? We don't think that the question of the availability of a forum or non-availability of a forum is sufficient to override the absence of any connection to the United States. Now, if I will I could say just follow up on the question I asked before. I, I, I'm not asking you to say definitively which way you would come out in this hypothetical case, but from your brief, I really don't understand uh, how you would decide. Would it depend? What would it depend on? Well, I think it would depend on a weighing of the strength of the interests of the United States, the foreign relations interests of the United States, in applying these, this narrow category of SOSA norms in order to avoid undermining the credibility of the United States. We're not very good at figuring out the foreign policy interests of the United States. And, and uh, you know, in the past, we've tried to get out from under the, the, our, our prior uh, case law in the sovereign immunity area of, of asking the State Department. The State Department would come in here, this is good, this is bad. We, we abandoned all that in the sovereign immunity field. Why should we uh, walk back into it here? Or, well, or, or, or do you intend to have us make these foreign policy decisions? Congress can always act in this area, Justice Scalia. No, but assuming Congress doesn't act, why should — you know, you, you want us to listen to the State Department case by case, is but, that — Well, I, we're — actually, what we're advocating here, Your Honor, is that the Court can make categorical judgments, not pure case-by-case factual judgments. We just think there's more than one category. There are salient differences between a situation like this one, in which there's no connection to the United States at all, 
or a situation like the one Justice Alito raised about an American corporation. And there, there are also cases in which this suit is against a, a direct perpetrator. Well, we, we listen to the State Department as to what those categories ought to be. Well, I think the, the categories are evident from the kinds of cases that have, have been brought, uh, but, but certainly the views of the State Department do deserve that. Are you talking about a nexus test? That's what it sounds like to me. has to have either an actor nexus or a act nexus, effect nexus. What are you talking about? I think what we're, we're not — we're talking about something different, Justice Sotomayor. The question is whether to recognize a federal common law cause of action. I think that depends — Either it on exists or it doesn't. — on what well, depends on a weighing of interests, I believe, Your Honor, and that there are interests that cut, uh, cut against recognizing causes of action in this area. That's what Sosa said. One Is of them, it, I, that's — I'm having trouble with this. We — without question, piracy, attacks on ambassadors, um, we know that those were international norms in 1789. If one of those acts happened — you seem to be suggesting that, answering Justice Kagan's hypothetical, that if a Frenchman attacks an English ambassador in Switzerland, that case would never be heard in the United States because there's no nexus to the United States. Is that correct? Well, if no one ever came to the United States. Well, assuming someone the, came, so no, how is then, that different? No, then the, the, it's, it's just — it's not — the connection is not an on-off switch, but — our position is you need a connection in order to assess whether there's even an interest in having — So why isn't presence alone in the United States a connection? Well, if it's an individual perpetrator like Philartica, we think that it is because it's the direct perpetrator. And if, the, and, and if in fact, in Philartica, it was done through a corporation, the torture, now? If the if — the, if it was — I think torture has to be — Torture is done by hiring Torture, Inc., okay? So, uh, is there or isn't? If it's a norm that has to be violated by you know, you, you a heard state the actor, if it's I, I need to answer that specific, uh, that specific hypothetical. Everything's the same, except the torture is carried out by Torture, Inc., because my actual question is about aiding and abetting. So you see, I mean, now, now, first part is they do it directly. Can they bring Philartica or not? In your view, if they do it directly, if they're the direct violator of a norm that they can violate directly, then yes, they can. Okay, but if it's aiding and abetting, then if it's a foreign corporation and it yeah, yeah. occurred entirely in a foreign yeah. country, so it turns on that. And my, what I really want to know is what is the difference between that? Is it like the criminal law difference of accessory versus principle, or what? May I answer, Mr. Chief? Briefly, Justice? yes. The difference is that while you would have. A, a comparable — you would have a risk of friction in subjecting a foreign sovereign's acts to scrutiny in the United States. You'd have the reciprocity risk I mentioned. You'd have to make a judgment about whether those concerns are overcome by the countervailing concern of applying the uh, — finding an ATS cause of action to apply U.S. norms. If it's an entirely foreign corporation with no connection to the United States, our position is the answer to that is no. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Hoffman, you have eight minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to make three points. Um, first, um, on the Bradford uh, opinion, I think if you read the diplomatic materials that we placed before the Court, it's absolutely clear that what the British were concerned about was pillaging and plundering on land in the Sierra Leone colony. They were seeking redress for those things, for destroying libraries, for destroying Freetown, not just about things that happened on the high seas, not just about things that happened in territorial waters. It's absolutely clear that that's true, but obviously you have those materials. You can read it. And, and Attorney General Bradford said there was no doubt that there was an ATS action. This is — He was is, also a U.S. perpetrator. Well, that's true. But with respect to the, the, uh, the presumption against extraterritoriality, it wouldn't matter if it's a U.S. perpetrator or not. And it shows exactly why the presumption can't apply, because it would undermine the very purposes of the statute in the best available evidence that we have about what it meant in the era. I would like to, to give a, a hypothetical that I think reveals why the, the U.S. government position should not be accepted. Um, suppose there's, a, there's an Iranian corporation that secretly supplies poison gas to the current Syrian regime in order to kill 
tens of thousands of, of, of Kurdish citizens. And suppose that after the Assad regime is overthrown, those do- the documents revealing that poison gas transfer um, to the Syrian regime is made public, and that Iranian corporation does business in the United States. Asylum seekers who were driven out by the poison gas attacks are in the United States, maybe living in the same communities as the plaintiffs in our case, having gotten asylum in this case. Would it be the case that the alien tort statute should not apply to a claim of aiding and abetting uh, the Assad regime in murdering tens and th- tens of thousands of its people. It is the modern-day example of I.G. Farben. Is it the case that a modern-day I.G. Farben would be exempt from the Alien Tort Statute? There is a, a clear, well-established doctrine of aiding and abetting in international law. It's been accepted by the lower courts. The lower courts have uniformly rejected the arguments that have been made by respondents in this case. And, and I would say that the SOSA framework is, should be given a chance to work. This Court dealt with these issues eight years ago. It, it set up a historical paradigm test based on many of the concerns uh, that have been expressed here. And there are alternative doctrines that can be applied to deal with these concerns. Political question, active state, international comedy, forum nonconvenience, personal jurisdiction, those have not really been litigated. Whether they've been waived or not is something the lower courts can can deal with whether given they the apply course, the law. Given the Court's recent decisions on personal jurisdiction, and I have in mind particularly the Goodyear um, Tire case, is there personal jurisdiction in this case or in, in the case your, your, your hypothetical? One of the problems that, that, that we would have, Justice Ginsburg, in answering that question is that there is no record about the contacts between these defendants and the and and the, the jurisdiction in 2002, the WeWa case, for example, where it was litigated, was dealt on a factual record that went back to 1996 and 1997. So there's no record here about personal jurisdiction because it hasn't been asserted. Now, if the, if the defendants have not, in fact, waived personal jurisdiction, then presumably the lower courts would apply the test that this court has has established or, or in the 2011 decisions. And, and the same would be true of forum nonconvenience or any of the other defenses. They have raised other defenses in this case that have not been fully litigated. So, so my basic position is that the SOSA framework actually is, works. It has actually weeded out cases. These alternative doctrines have weeded out cases. But the Court should not accept the categorical positions asserted by either, either the respondents, which are the broadest uh, categorical positions, even rejected by the government, or the government's modified categorical position. There, the, 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 those kinds of issues can be dealt with within well-established doctrines where lower courts have a body of jurisprudence that they can use to do this. Um, the Alien Tort Statute, as, as it was applied to human rights cases from Florida on, is part of a trend in, in the world today. The trend in the world today is towards universal justice for people that, and, and, and corporations that violate these kinds of norms. That's the trend. In fact, the United States has been the leader in that. Our government has proclaimed our leadership position to U.N. bodies and around the world. Well, the United Kingdom and the Netherlands don't think so. Well, the United Kingdom and the Netherlands have obviously asserted this position, but the Netherlands have asserted that position while at the same time, 21 days after the, the argument in February, a Dutch court imp- gave damages to a Palestinian doctor for wrongful imprisonment and torture that occurred in Libya against two Libyan defendants that were not even present in the courtroom. It may have been wrong. Well, it may have been, but, the, but, but actually it seems perfectly consistent with Dutch law. It is consistent with the exercise of, ju- of universal jurisdiction in many li- pieces of legislation. I'd rather listen to the Dutch government than, than, than one, one Dutch judge, frankly. Well, the, the Dutch government, though, and one of the significant pieces in this case is that the Nigerian government doesn't have a position on this case any longer. The United States government has never asked for this case to be dismissed on foreign policy grounds. The United Kingdom and the Dutch government have never asked for this case to be um, to be in, uh, invalidated on foreign policy grounds. They've stated their position about what they think the Alien Tort Statute should mean. And if you look at the European Union brief, of which the United Kingdom and Dutch are members, 
The United the, — the European Union says there is no issue about universal jurisdiction. There is no issue about civil jurisdiction that falls within universal jurisdiction. Their only argument is that if you accept that, you should accept international law position and exhaustion of local remedies. And isn't that really the way to reconcile the Dutch positions that the Dutch are objecting because they think that they have a fair forum? But right. when the Dutch was, were faced with a — uh, a case arising from Libya, they thought that there was no fair forum there. And that's the difference, that well, in one case there was exhaustion and in the other there wasn't. I think that that's probably what the basis of the Dutch position. Well, our, our position, though, is that this — the framework that this Court established in Sosa to, to take the pirates of the 18th century and deal with the alien tort statute with the torturers and those who commit genocide in the 21st century was correct. And that, and it doesn't need a radical reevaluation, re as suggested by the respondents in the United States. If there are no further questions, I'd thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.